Well, uh, good morning. I, it is it is it is good to be back. It's good to be on vacation. I, I enjoy that the the going away and doing other things. <clears throat> but there's this moment where you're just you know you, you, at the end of a day or something. You're just you're just kind of trying to unwind. And so um, Ashley and I and the kids where we we've made it back to the room and it's late and we're trying to unwind. And so we turn on the TV and I, I don't know about the rest of the parents in here, but it's really hard to find the perfect thing to watch when it's you and the kids involved. Like because if it's just for the kids, you turn on Bluey or something. And if it's just for the parents, it's like well who cares what it's rated? Maybe you know just like it, there's there's a whole spectrum of things that you're considering, but, but when, when you're trying to find something for the whole family to watch, you want it to be entertaining, but you don't want it to have too many cuss words, uh, and so we're, we're traveling through these, these channels, and uh, a Marvel movie is on. It's Iron Man 3, and Ashley says, you know, hey, what about this? Does this work? I'm like, yeah, that works. Iron Man's good, and, and there are two things that happen in that moment. One, I realized uh, I've never watched Iron Man 3. I don't know how I got away with that. I thought I had. If you had asked me, have you watched all the Marvel movies? I would say, yeah, I feel like I have. Uh, I, I can certainly, like, sit down and just nerd out with anybody about, like, the story arcs and, like, who killed who and why and, like, how they came back to life and, like, all the motivations of all the characters, but somehow I missed Iron Man 3, which is right kind of in the middle of, I don't know what phase that is, like phase two of Marvel. Uh, and, and as you're watching Marvel, and as you're watching any good movie, um, it should stand alone. So Iron Man 3 stood alone as a movie. Everybody understood it, even, even, even though I watched all the others. Actually, this is her first Marvel movie that she's ever watched. She, she said, hey, that's pretty good. I like that. Um, if you've ever had a conversation with a friend, you're in the middle, like maybe you go watch a Marvel movie uh, in theaters. There's this moment where you have to explain like all the characters and like all the, all the things that led up to this moment. So if you just go watch Doctor Strange right now, now, it's an okay movie. You can watch it just by itself with knowing nothing else. But it really adds something if you go back and watch all of them or if you have someone to explain to you all of them all the way through. And that's not just true of Marvel. Isn't that true of, of your favorite book? Is that If you turn on, like someone says, hey, have you watched this show? And, the, and then you, they point to a show and you turn it on, you're in the middle of season four. Maybe it hangs on and it has a sufficient story to entertain you, but it would make a lot more sense if you knew all of the characters all the way through building up to it. And so what I want to do today is uh, I just want to acknowledge that a lot of us have come to faith at, at different stages uh, and we know different things about the gospel. We know different moments about the gospel, different episodes, if you will. Um, some of us, like our only exposure has been kind of New Testament uh, stuff. We've, we've had someone teach to us John. We've had someone teach to us different pieces of the New Testament. Um, but we don't really see why we have the rest of the half of the Bible. Like We don't see the connection there. And just like uh, Marvel does an excellent job of hiding little bits of their stories in every movie. I saw a video yesterday. I'm going back to Marvel for some reason, but I saw a video yesterday that in the background of Thor having a conversation is a clip from his first movie, and it's like an end game. So we're like we're we're eight years later, and they're hiding bits of old movies in the background of it. And just just like they can do that because they're good storytellers, God, as He's unwound the gospel from beginning to end, has done an excellent job of doing callbacks and throwbacks to the beginning. So what I want to do, if you would allow me, um, is to just like, just like a really weird nerd would like, Hey, we're going to sit down. We're going to watch all the Marvel movies right now. Right. If you want to watch Disney, you turn on Disney plus, they have all the Marvel movies in order. What I want to do is I want to teach the whole Bible in one message, the whole thing, if I could, from beginning to end and try to specifically find the story arc that, that starts at the beginning of the Bible and transfers all the way through to the end. 
If, uh, if I could give a little bit of background real quick, um, the first five books of the Bible uh, are called uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, and, and these are written by Moses, and Moses would have written in 1500 BC. Um, and uh, the, the New Testament authors finished their Bible, finished all of the New Testament scriptures before AD 70. And so you have uh, nearly 2,000 years, 1,500 years of writing that the whole story makes sense all the way through. We talked about this before. Before, uh, I left. And so I want to look at the story. I want to look at the message in each one. What I want to look at is the gospel arc as a single thread through the whole Bible. I want to look at the gospel through, as God like presented it through people, humanity, Adam and Eve. I want to look at the gospel through the judges, through the kings, through the wisdom literature, through the prophets, and eventually through the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the promised one. Um, and then back to the people. Again, he, he reverts back to the people. So we are going to do this together. If you have your Bible, I'm going to jump around, uh, as you might imagine, an entire message on the entire Bible. I've got to move around a little bit. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 2, if you want to turn there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this is kind of like an in-the-beginning moment. We have, we have Adam. Eve hasn't even been made yet. Eve happens in the next paragraph. And you have a, a moment where God uh, takes Adam and has this conversation with him. It says in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, uh, that is Adam, and put uh, him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Okay, so his job from the very beginning is that, hey, I've, I've made this perfect garden. It's beautiful, it's perfect, sufficient in every way, and I want you to just tend to it. I want you to keep it. I want you to make sure everything runs well. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you've been around the Bible long enough, you've already fast forwarded to the serpent, you know exactly what's about to happen. But I just want to pause and just kind of consider like what that commandment means. In, in, in the eyes of Adam, Everything that he could possibly imagine to do, every instance, there, there is zero opportunity for him to do anything evil. He can't even imagine to do an evil thing except for one thing, and that's to eat of this one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And so the, the serpent will later, and I'll read it in a moment, the serpent will later kind of challenge that, like, hey, why doesn't God want you to know good and evil? But, but in, in Adam's eyes, all he knows is the goodness of God and that everything I could ever want is, is here. Why, why, would, why would this restriction of the knowledge of good and evil be there? Tons of people have thought about it. I just want you to consider if, if, you've, if you've been around children for a while, um, children tend to ask this one question a lot. It's the question, why? Right? You, you, have you noticed that? Any parents in here? Like It's just like, it, it's ad nauseum. The, the question why is, uh, uh, why? I don't know, honey. Go ask God, okay? Like, just why, why is the sky blue? Why is this? One day, uh, we're at Walmart, family, and we're looking, and we pass that wall with all the missing children, you know? And my kid sees the missing, hey, why are all these pictures up there? Oh, these are missing children. Well, why are they missing? Well, people took them. Well, why did they take them? And there's, there's more answers to that question, right? But eventually, we're like one why away from me telling my kid something. I don't, I'm not ready for him to know yet. I don't, I don't want him to know what the world, the types of evil that the world is capable of. And so as a loving dad, I would say something, and maybe to misdirect, or I would say, listen, we'll talk about that later, right? Uh, you can ask me why there's trafficking in the world. You can ask me why that Amber Alert from Groves, Texas went out uh, last night. But, but I, you know, maybe you don't need that bouncing around in your head, son. 
You know, the knowledge of good and evil isn't a, a knowledge of, like, God, God's trying to withhold something good from his creation, Adam. The knowledge of good and evil is like a dad looking to a son and saying, listen, there are things in this world you haven't even imagined yet that are evil. You don't want that knowledge in you yet. <laughs> like, we're going we're gonna, to, maybe, maybe you can grow into, I don't know what God's plan was originally, but, but he, he's restricting Adam, not from a, a, from a good thing, He's restricting Adam from this, this knowledge, this experiential to, to know what evil is. So you fast forward, Eve is formed right after that, and so they are now in the garden. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord, uh, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, this is the serpent saying to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So uh, real quick, just, just to set this up, um, when God said that, Eve hadn't been created yet, and so God only said it to Adam. The serpent is asking Eve, hey, what, what do you remember God saying? Whatever Eve says past this has to have come from Adam's mouth. He, he has to be kind of retelling the story to his wife. And the woman said to the uh, serpent, we may eat of any fruit. We can, we can eat all these trees. It doesn't matter. We can eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she remembers there's like a, there's a warning, that one tree, don't touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, might die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, uh, I think in English, this, this kind of play, because he didn't say you will surely not die. He didn't promise you're not going to die. He's saying you will not surely die. It's like, are you sure? Like it could go either way. Is it, is it a for sure thing that you're going to die? Maybe test it out, see what it is. For God knows, this is the serpent, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she looks at it, she's like, mm, man, that looks good. Starts smelling good. You ever walk past like Roadhouse or like, you know, uh, Longhorn? You're like, oh yeah, mm, that's a delight to the eye right there in the nose. You start tasting it. She's like looking at that fruit. It's like, ooh, yeah, that looks good. It's a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She's like, the consequences, like, I get some more knowledge. That's not bad. She took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and they ate it. Mmm, it was good. In the next verse, you know, the serpent says, God knows that whenever you eat it, your eyes will be opened to good and evil. The next verse is, he was kind of telling the truth. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The first thing they did is like, my wife is naked, my husband's naked, let's get clothes on right away. The first response to the first thing of evil is shame and guilt and like what has happened. Um, and then we call this the fall. In fact, at the top of my Bible, it says the fall. Like this is, explains why all of creation has the fall. So the gospel through the people um, is that first the world is broke because the people didn't follow. the. There was one person, Adam. He had one rule and then created Eve. Now there's two. There's two people to follow. This is all creation. There's only one possible thing of evil that you could even fathom to do. And they did it. They ran and they did that because they wanted to be like God. And in doing so, they had implanted in their mind uh, a new, like we, we are... We are so capable of inventing new kinds of evil towards each other. It's, it's amazing. Where did all this evil come from? You know, a lot of people, and maybe if you've been around uh, some people who like get heady and they think like, okay, well, if there is a God, why is there so much evil in the world? This is why. 
This is, this is why there's so much evil in the world. The, the, problem, the problem with believing in God isn't that there's so much evil in the world. It's like, where did all the good come from? Like, why, why do we still have hints and tastes of good and opportunities to do good? And so Adam and Eve, um, they fall. They, they introduce into the DNA, into who we are, the ability to create new ways to be evil, and their children murder each other as a response to it. Like, the, the next generation is like, I figured out murder. I'm going to invent something new, Cain said. Oh, is it a wheel? No, I'm killing my brother. Okay, and so they, they invented murder. They've invented adultery. They invent uh, slander. They invent lies. They invent cruelty. They eventually invent slavery. Like, all of humanity starts inventing evil, evil, evil all the way through, but God tries to restore them. The gospel of the people begins with Adam because he says, follow me. I'm, you got to get out of the garden, but follow me and I'll, I'll make your way. But then, but then the people forgot who God was. And then you get to the days of Noah and all of the world has forgotten who God is with the exception of one man, Noah, who builds the boat. And so Noah rescues himself and his three sons. The whole world is destroyed and God's like, I'm going to rebuild humanity with Noah and the family. And they eventually do evil. Not eventually, immediately do evil. Noah gets plastered drunk as soon as he lands on land, gets naked. His kids come in, make fun of him. <laughs> Dad's naked. And, and like, God's like, what are you doing? Why don't you do this? And so he scatters them again. Uh, then you get to Abraham. He calls, in the times of Abraham, nobody remembered the name of God. And God says, hey, Abram, I'm choosing you. I'm going to create out of you a nation of priests. I'm going to create out of you a people who follow me. I'm going to rescue you. And so Abraham's like, okay, I'll follow you. But eventually, immediately, he starts trading his wife for his own safety. He, he doesn't follow the Lord well, but, but God's still threading the gospel. And then out of the family of Abraham, you get this man, Moses, and when Moses comes to be, when, when we meet him, uh, the people of God that God has chosen have been in slavery for the last 400 years. They're forgetting who God is. They're, they're all wondering, like, when is God going to rescue us? And Moses shows up, and he has that great phrase, let my people go, you know, and then you have all the cartoons, and you have great things. But, but he eventually fails God. He goes, and uh, we get the Ten Commandments. We get all of the law, and God says, I will be a God to these people. Follow my law. I'm going to create. I'm going to be a God of compassion. I'm going to be a God of mercy. And while the people are, or while Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the people are at the bottom making a calf to follow a new God. Aaron makes a calf and says, here, people, this is the God who rescued out of Moses. This is the equivalent to while you're on your wedding day, and the groom and the bride have separated, one of the people are cheating on the other person. Like this is, this is uh, fascinating and tragic. Our ability to do evil and to run from God. And yet God is patient and he's kind. And he continues to thread that. We eventually get Joshua who leads the people into the promised land. But each time through the gospel of the people, here's what you, you, you need to hear me say, um, that God has always left a remnant of people. God is a God that, that he, he's not the one who just gives up on the entire playscape and just tosses all the toys out. Uh, he, he always saves like a remnant of people. It's like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue my promise. I'm going to continue what I want to do with the smallest number of people. I'll take it all the way back down to one if I have to, and I will continue. There's always a remnant. So the gospel of the people is like, we, we just continue to fail. We continue to mess up. What about the judges? See, after, after Joshua, and after Joshua enters the promised land, he, uh, he follows the Lord, and the people follow the Lord because the leader follows the Lord. It's an interesting dynamic. When, when the leaders of people follow the Lord, entire groups of people follow along. Um, and so as Joshua is following the Lord, things are good. They're, they're, they're conquering. They're, they're, they're doing well. They're being blessed by the Lord. But um, he dies, as people tend to do. And 
and uh, the people forget who who God was. And they start to invent evil again. They start to do evil over and over again. So we enter this, this season, uh, it's, in, it's in the book of Judges, where, where God, every time that people choose to do evil, God raises up a new judge to, to do something, to, to bring them back to himself. Every time they continue to do evil. In the book of Judges, you have some famous judges like Samson, you know, the guy with the long hair, and Delilah, he has a crush on. Uh, you have a guy named Gideon, uh, he's, he's kind of a big deal. You have others, uh, Othniel, Ehud, uh, Deborah, uh, Samuel, I would count as one of the judges, but he's in the book of Samuel, not in the book of, of Judges. And each time it's the people, they, they lose their way. They want to they wanna just follow other gods, and, and, and God calls them back to himself. Read, read with me in Judges chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to turn there quickly. Just kind of a summary of how the Judges works. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Yep. Uh, that's oh, I'm in Joshua. That's why I'm like, it's not the right verse. Thank you. The voice of the Lord is like, no, turn to Judges, Jesse. <laughs> that's good. Uh, judges uh, chapter two, uh, verse eleven. I'm back in Joshua again. Okay. Uh, and, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals are other gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Imagine like what God's perspective is. Just a little while ago, I rescued you from 400 years of slavery, and I created a covenant with you, and I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And they're immediately like, oh, you have a God over there? Let me go check him out. They go to the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth over and over and over again. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. The consequence of them following these other gods is God's like, oh, you want them to protect you? Let's see how that works. And he pulls his hand back, and when he pulls his hand back, the people have their way with Israel. They, they conquer, they, they take from them, they, they plunder them is the word. It says, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord uh, was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress because they're marching out to conquer things that God's not blessing them for anymore. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, that each generation the Lord would bring a judge. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed their commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. It says, whenever the Lord uh, raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Here's, here's how uh, entire multiple generations are recorded in the book of Judges. Each generation a new judge. The book of Judges covers 12 judges, so you're looking at 12 generations. I don't know how long a generation is, 40 years, something like that, 30, 40 years, that for 12 generations, God would raise up a person like, follow this judge. He will lead you back to me. And as soon as he died, they went after other gods. It used strong language right here because God is envisioning the sense of like a, a, a marriage where the spouse is constantly going out and seeking others uh, to whom they could be with. 
They're going and seeking other gods instead. And God gracefully raises up another judge. We're going to raise up Samson. You follow Samson for a while. Samson's kind of a knucklehead, but he leads them back to God. And then Samson dies and like, I invented a new way to do evil. I'm going to do crazy things. Why, why, why do we have so much evil in this, in this world? I posted on, on Facebook, I had a conversation with, with a friend that I think most of us know in here. He's like, hey, did you hear about the shootings in my home country? No, I hadn't. I looked at it. I Googled it. It happened. Like, my gosh, that is so evil. So I posted it on Facebook. It's like, look how evil this is. This is crazy. I can't believe that. And I have a, a friend, a sister-in-law or cousin-in-law. She's like, oh, I had a shooting in my, in my hometown recently. Why did we have a shooting in, in uh, Uvalde? Why, why, do we have, why do we have so much death? Why do we have so much pain? Why is, it, why is it that people can do wicked, evil things and hurt each other so dramatically? It's because we are inventors of evil. Our heart is constantly drawn towards what can I do to, to, to bring my own you know, needs forward. I, I'm going to run out of time, so let me, let me keep going. The gospel through the king. So after the judges, the people are like, listen, God, uh, it's been great following the judges, following your way, but we want to be like them. We want kings like they have. God's like, you really don't really want a king. Uh, if you were with us in our David series, you remember that bit at the beginning of David. You, you don't want a king because they're going to lead you and they're going to they're going to take advantage of you. You don't you don't want that. But if you if you say that you do, we'll let it happen. And the people are like, yeah, I don't care what you say. I want I want a king. I want a king right now. And so we get to kings. And so our first king, Saul, knucklehead, he can't follow God. Second king, David, he's okay. He does pretty good. Uh, he has some flaws. Uh, in fact, I'm getting ready. Probably next week we'll we'll pick up season two of David and see how how things go with him as king. But I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. Maybe a little spoiler alert. He doesn't do a great job as king. Uh, he has a son. Solomon is his son. Solomon is the wisest man the Bible has ever known. Um, he doesn't do a great job as king. Uh, and his son, Rehoboam, uh, shows up and he's like, I don't even like being a king. I don't like this kingdom. And it eventually splits the kingdom. They're terrible at following the Lord. Uh, Second Chronicles uh, kind of keeps like real quick uh, synopsis of each of the kings and how things went. This is how uh, Second Chronicles documents Rehoboam. It says this in chapter 12. It says, so King Rehoboam, he grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. Okay, so he's, he's not... It's not a child. Uh, and he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Namah the Ammonite. It sounds pretty good. This is a pretty good uh, king just from this. Oh, except for this last sentence. And he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Here's what you know about Rehoboam. If you read it in 2 Kings, is that Rehoboam, uh, he, would, he would meet someone who's like, oh, you, you have a God? Who's your God? We'll build an altar to your God and would lead the nation to, to just worship gods and do evil things. You know, these other gods that they worship, it's not just like going and praying in a temple. They're, they're creating sacrifices. Some of these gods are like asking for child sacrifices. Some of these gods are, are, are causing the people to do evil things. And Rehoboam leads the nation to that evil again. Uh, but God continues in the Wisdom, the gospel through wisdom. Uh, most of the wisdom is written by uh, Solomon. You have uh, the book of Proverbs is mostly written by Solomon, book of Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon is a book of wisdom to, uh, to, to like a, a, a couple learning to, to fall in love. Uh, Psalms is considered some of uh, wisdom. The gospel through wisdom is like, as, as people just thought these things, they, they said, like, what can we figure out about God and his ways? Uh, they, they wanted, to, they wanted to know how to follow God. Here's what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 5. 
It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. The, the, the book of wisdom, as it thinks about evil, is they don't even know they're doing evil anymore. We're, we're so, our mouths just run. We, we tell our spouses things. We, we lie. We, we, we will cheat if, if we're not being tempered back to the Lord, if we're not caring. If we, if we just run amok, we, we start to create evil without even realizing it. And then Ecclesiastes ends with this sentence uh, in chapter 12. It says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here, here's the gospel of God traced through the Old Testament. That he has, he has not ignored evil. He hasn't ignored the plight of his people. He hasn't ignored the cries of their heart. He, he said earlier, is like he would hear the, the cries of the people and he would have pity on them. Even though they're getting their just desserts, he would have pity on them because he's a God of compassion and of mercy. Listen to me real quick. If, if you've dozed off, just listen to this real quick. Um, the reason why this is important is because when you're going through the junk of life and you get to that season of life where you're like, has God forgotten me in my plight? The promise is that he hasn't because his nature from the very beginning was to care for his people, even though it was their own evil causing their own problems, he still cares. Before you give up on God, before you run out screaming, you're just like, I'm sick of, I'm sick of this. You have a friend who's just, I don't, I don't even know if I can take one more day. God is a God who will see that good and evil are taken care of, but the gospel traces all the way through. You get into the gospel of the prophets. You guys know many of the prophets. The biggest name of all the prophets is going to be Isaiah, but there are others. You have Jeremiah, you have um, uh, Ezekiel. Uh, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. The dude needed some Prozac. Like, he was constantly depressed, uh, he, and he had reason to be depressed. Like People were trying to kill him all the time uh, just because he was trying to say what God wanted to and, and these prophets, their job was to say, listen, nation, your evil is about to get repaid to you. Stop what you're doing. You have time. Stop what you're doing. You have time. Jonah, a prophet, he didn't want to go tell Nineveh who God was uh, because he didn't want them to turn back. He wanted them to be like, you know, judged really fast. That'd be awesome if you could judge those people. And finally, after the well and the fish and all that, he, he ends up in Nineveh and he preaches one sentence, one sentence. And the entire city turns back to God and God spares them judgment. And Jonah gets mad because that's the nature of God. God's nature is that he forgives those who would repent. And he's mad at him for doing that. He's like, just kill me now, God. I wish you would. Uh, that's, that's Jonah. Isaiah, his job is to preach to the southern kingdom. He's like, you've been following the Lord, but have you really? It's not been great. And Assyria is about to come conquer us if you don't turn back right now. The entire first half of Isaiah is warning, warning, warning. Evil's about to be repaid. Evil's about to be repaid. But it ends with this hope because he's like, even though you're about to be captured, God's not giving up on you. Isaiah has one of the most beautiful pictures of the prophecy of Christ. It's beautiful in how accurate it is. This sounds like it's from the New Testament. In fact, you're going to recognize most of it. If you just read chapter 53 of Isaiah all the way through, uh, it will blow your mind with how accurate he was in that. And just to put it in perspective, he's writing this 500 years before the New Testament, before Jesus, 
right? 500 years before. This would be like Christopher Columbus landing on the coast of America and describing to us who the president's going to be in a couple of years. Like by, by nature, by character, he's going to be a, in a, like this, it's going to be a, a third party. Nobody's ever heard of this third party and it's going to be that party. And like you, you would think Christopher Columbus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're too far removed. That's how far Isaiah is removed from meeting Jesus. And here's what he says about Jesus in chapter 53, verses four. So surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yeah, he, he's going to bear our griefs and our burdens, but we look at him and we're like, you deserve this. You must, God must hate you. But he was wounded for whose transgressions? Not his transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is looking forward 500 years later, and he's saying, all we like sheep have invented our own ways of being evil and our own ways of being corrupt, our own ways of protecting ourselves, and it is running from God. And instead of God laying on us our iniquities, he's saving up his wrath to lay it on the Christ delayed on the chosen one. Who knows who it's going to be? Isaiah's like, I don't, I don't have his name yet. He's waiting. He lays it up. Then after the prophets close, you have 500 years of silence where the people are just floundering. They go off into their captivity, Babylon and Assyria, Persia eventually. And then they come back home and they're like, where's God? Where's our temple? What are we supposed to do? You ever entered into the season of silence where you knew 10 years ago, you knew exactly what God wanted you to do. But as far as you're concerned, this last week has been hell on earth. I don't know if I've I've heard from him lately. I don't know what's next. I don't know what the next, I don't know if I can take one more hit. I don't know if I can do it. That's what the people felt for 500 years. And then in steps Jesus, the Christ, the gospel through the Christ is the most beautiful message ever because the judges couldn't save us, the people couldn't save us, the kings couldn't save us, the prophets couldn't point us in the right way, and there wasn't enough wisdom in the world to pull the evil out of our hearts because we're just evil little factories and we just want to hurt ourselves. And the Christ shows up. John three sixteen, the most famous verse, you know it. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave another judge. No, he gave, he gave a king that could rule, no, the nation. No, he, he, gave, he gave the smartest man ever the world has ever known, the richest man ever the world has ever known. No, he's already done that, and it didn't work. We, we didn't follow him. It, did, it, didn't, it didn't have enough information or enough for us to get it right. No, for God so loved the world that he is now fulfilling his promise that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, all of the iniquity that's been stacking up since Adam deserves, like God has the right. He could just condemn everything, wipe it off and go. But, but the gospel arc, the message all the way through, as we get to John even, is that he's not really willing to give up. He's willing to always keep a remnant. And we couldn't do it ourselves. Adam couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Uh, but he sends his only son who did do it. That's why Romans calls Jesus the second Adam. Because in, in Christ, in, in our first Adam, we have evil factories and all we know is evil. But in Christ, because he's our second Adam, all of the iniquity has been laid on him. By his stripes, you and I, we're healed. We have hope to not have judgment hanging over us, to not have that constant shame. The first response of Adam and Eve eating the fruit was shame and guilt. And we don't have to have that anymore because Christ 
And then uh, I would close. I'm going I'm to skip uh, reading a bit because I read it just a few weeks ago. But 2 Corinthians 5 is we, we get to the gospel through the people again. It started with the people. And now our job is to be ministers of reconciliation, to go out into a world that is broken, who is far from God, and say, it's not up to you. It's not up to your judges. It's not up to your kings. It's not up to how smart you are. It's not up to how powerful you are, how rich you are. But we get to go out and say, come to Christ and be ministers of reconciliation. We get to bring this message, uh, this message that God has been writing from the beginning of time uh, to now, connecting all the dots. The arc of the story of the gospel through the entire scriptures is this, is that a son is sufficient. His son is one that we can, can surrender to, and in doing so, we can find peace and we can find purpose. Um, and it's not just a one undone message. He's been building up this story from the beginning, like a good, like a good story writer would. I want to, I want to pray for you. Um, and then we will, uh, we'll watch the, the cue together. Um, what, what I hope is that as we, as we leave the space, um, that we would reflect on, on the sufficiency. I keep thinking of that word. I've been thinking of that word all morning, the sufficiency of God in Christ. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't need you to have Jesus plus some extra sacrifices or extra labors on you. It's not Jesus plus anything. He's holy and completely sufficient. Um, and because of him, you can have peace with your God and you have peace with other people. You can, you can walk out of here without the guilt and shame that all evil is always caused. You can walk out of here with your head up. I am a son. I am a daughter of the one true king. He created all of this and he is in good relationship with me, not because of anything awesome I've done, but because my wounds, uh, my iniquities was laid on his son and he took that away. Uh, and I can have hope. We'll watch the queue after I pray. I want to invite you if, uh, if, if you are, um, interested in learning how to study the Bible. Um, we're going to start something new tonight at six o'clock. Uh, you'll hear about summer school here in a minute, but the goal is like, let's learn how to study the Bible well together. If that interests you, uh, come talk to me in a moment. Let me pray. Father, uh, this morning, uh, Lord, we thank you that, uh, you, you are not a God that is disorganized. Um, you, you've, You've not been changing your plans for the last thousand years, and we're just on plan C. Father, you've been working this out from the very beginning, that your message was clear from the very beginning, that you are a compassionate and gracious God. You are merciful for so many generations to not have given up on our forefathers and our ancestors. Um, Lord, you're not going to give up on us. Uh, Thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that there's not a person in this room, there's not a person hearing my voice that you've given up on, that there is no hope. There's always hope in the name of Jesus um, if we turn to you. Uh, there's hope for our nation. There's hope for our people. There's hope for the, the burdens that are around us. Lord, would you, um, would you stop the evil in this world? Would you, would you end some of our uh, inventiveness on creating new evils? Father, help us have, have some peace in our nation, in our families, in our community. Um, Lord, we need healing, we need protection, we need Christ. Uh, help us, help us to bring that into our world that's hurting. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.